You're listening to The Redeemed Bride by Ian Ashby, part of our A City on a Hill series. For more audio content and resources, please visit newfrontierschurch.com. So um, we have just begun a series of messages uh, on the church uh, where we're looking, what does it mean for the church to be a city on the hill, as, uh, as Jesus said? And so we're looking at different biblical metaphors uh, to to try and understand better our, our identity as God's people and our purpose, okay? And so this morning, I want to look at one particular metaphor. We're going to be looking at it over the next couple of weeks, and that is that the church is called the Bride of Christ. The Bride of Christ. Now, I realize that if you're a guy here, that may feel a little awkward uh, for you, uh, maybe a little weird, uh, but... Uh, we need to remember that every metaphor is important and tells us something about our relationship with God and with one another. And we need to remember that uh, it's not you as an individual who's necessarily the bride of Christ, all right? But we collectively, we the church, are the bride of Christ. The church is referred to as a she, all right? So she is the bride of Christ. Now, where... Uh, do we find that in God's story? That's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. Imagine if you are a young uh, 20-year-old, young man, um, your whole life ahead of you, and one day the God that you know, that you've grown up with, the God that you know and love, says to you, Son, I have a wife for you your lifelong partner. So you say, awesome, Lord. Where is she? Who is she? Let me guess. Let me guess, Lord, that she's a, she's a cross between uh, Miss World and the Virgin Mary, right? Is that what you got for me? Right? I know it must be. I know how much you love me, right? So I'm going to name it and claim it. And, and God says to you, no, son, Actually, I want you to marry a prostitute. And what's more, she's not going to change, even when she's married to you. That's what God told a young man called Hosea. I'm just going to read from Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. It says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman. Or if you're reading that from the ESV, go marry a wife of whoredom and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he married Goma, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Lord, I pray right now that by your Spirit, you would instruct us this morning. You would speak to us. You would help us, Lord, as we consider uh, these verses and what it means to be your bride. I pray, O God, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we might know you better, Lord, that we might even be changed as a result. Lord, we ask it for your glory. Amen. We don't know whether 
Uh, Golma was actually a prostitute when he married her, but God sure made it clear that this was going to be an unfaithful bride. Uh, We might think it's a great thing to be a prophet, right? I mean, you know, you get to declare the mind of God, the counsel of God, you get the respect of all the people, and then you read about people like Hosea and Jeremiah, and uh, you think, actually, it's a pretty serious thing being a prophet. Who'd want to be a prophet? Because Hosea here was being asked to not only be God's messenger to his people, but to actually live the message that his marriage was to be like a living parable to communicate not just what God was saying, but what God was feeling. And perhaps nowhere else in the Old Testament do we find God expressing his innermost feelings his sorrow and his pain, as we do here through uh, the prophet Hosea. So what was the pain that God was experiencing? What does it have to do with marrying a prostitute? Well, if you know the story of the Bible, then you'll know that God had chosen a people for himself. Uh, right? He'd, he'd chosen the people of Israel. They were going to be a people through whom he was going to make his salvation known to all Uh, the rest of the fallen, wayward world. And so he chose this people and he calls them his treasured possession. They were the apple of his eye. And yet there was nothing redeeming about them, no redeeming quality that should make God want to choose them. The Bible says it's not because they were better than anyone else. There was nothing in them that should cause God to want to love them. It says in Deuteronomy uh, 7, 8, that the Lord set his love upon them because he loved them. He loved them because he loved them. Just God's sovereign, distinguishing, unmerited grace and love. It was in keeping with the promise that God had given their forefather, Abraham. And so they entered into this covenant of love with their God, where they were called to respond to God's love by loving him with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, that they were to be faithful to him, that they would be his people, and he would be their God. The language is like a marriage. That's where we see it beginning to emerge in in God's story. And it's why one of the metaphors used to describe this relationship is that of a husband and wife. And so we read in Isaiah uh, 54, it says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Isaiah 62, it says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. But as we know, it's the people we love who hurt us the most, isn't it? We know that in our friendships. We know that in our family relationships. Our children. It hurts when your child turns around, lashes out in anger, says, I hate you. But the most painful wound of all is the betrayal of a spouse. 
And sadly, you know, there are some here who have experienced that. And that's what we see happening here as the, as the story of the Old Testament unfolds. We see that God's bride is proving to be unfaithful again and again and again as she turns to worship other gods and to engage in the fertility cults uh, of all the surrounding peoples. And even though God expressed his anger at their infidelity and warned them of the consequences at the same time, we read of God's pain as his people continued to betray him, causing God to grieve with the heart of a, a rejected lover. And yet, and yet, throughout it all, God refuses to tear up the marriage certificate. Ultimately, he would end up chastising them. There was a separation period where he sent the remainder of his people into exile, but God remained true to his promise. He would not divorce his people. And that's what we see being played out here in the life of Hosea. His own marriage was to become a living parable of God's marriage to his people. And so he married this woman called Goma, and they had a son together, and then Goma had two more children, except that we don't know whether Hosea was the father or not. Because in the early years of their marriage, it would seem that Goma was a serial adulteress. And, and as Hosea pleads for his wife to put away her whoring, as it says in the ESV, even pleading through his own children, you feel his pain. But it was the same pain that God was feeling over the unfaithfulness of his own people. Which should give us pause for thought as God's people today. If you are a professing Christian here, you know, we need to understand we can also grieve God. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 4.30 he says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. God dwells in us. So when we sin, when we are unfaithful, it grieves him because we've been joined to him. We're one with him. And in fact, the Apostle Paul you know, talks a little bit about what that means um, in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6. He addresses the uh, sexual immorality that was taking place in the church. Uh, he uses a word, uh, porneia is the Greek word. Porneia is what we translate sexual immorality. And it basically covers uh, any form of sexual sin, which is essentially uh, any sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage, which God intended it for because it's sacred. And this is what uh, Paul wrote to the church, 1 Corinthians 6.13, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's not meant for porneia, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Well, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. That seems to be the specific sin that was going on in the Corinthian church with men visiting prostitutes and thinking it wouldn't affect their relationship with God or their bodies or anything. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality, it says. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And I would argue here, this applies just as much to pornography, which of course comes from the word porneia, as it does any other sexual sin, because of the images that we fill our minds and our hearts with and the effect that has on us. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. It's why any kind of sexual sin grieves God, because we belong to him. Right? We're one with him. We are his bride. I just want to ask you, is there anything you need to flee from this morning, right? Don't just skirt around the edges and see how close you can get, right? Paul says, no, you run in the other direction. You flee from it, right? Don't wait for God to expose it, which he surely will because he loves you too much. You are his. You belong to him. I'm speaking to people who profess to be Christians today. If you don't, this doesn't really apply to you, right? Is there anything you need to flee from? Bring it into the light. Talk to someone. Make yourself accountable to someone. Go to someone that you trust, okay, that you can talk to. And it's not just sexual sin, because in Ephesians 4, where Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the focus there is on how we treat one another um, and how we speak to one another. The focus there is not on our own bodies, but on other members of Christ's body, where he says that we're to put away anger and bitterness and we are to be humble towards one another that we are to bear with one another in love, that we are to strive to keep the unity that we have in Christ. Why? Because otherwise we grieve God when we badmouth one another, or accuse one another, or hold things against one another. It's like dragging God's precious bride through the mud. It grieves him. And you know, there are consequences when we do that. In fact, in Hosea, we find there are frequent warnings. If you read through the book, there are frequent warnings of God's judgment as his people are made to face the seriousness of their sin. Right? Even though God loves us with a passion, he loves his bride, there are still consequences to our sin. And Paul makes that very clear later on in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, he says there that they were despising the church of God. Um, and this time, not because of sexual sin, but because of, their, again, their sin towards one another. 
He says it's because of the way that they were treating one another. He says there are factions and divisions among you. You're despising the church of God, he says. And uh, so when they came to break bread together, he told them to examine themselves first, lest they come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And therefore would eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And in fact, in verse 30, 1 Corinthians 11, he says something quite shocking. This is what he says. He says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? They were literally eating and drinking judgment upon themselves because of the way they were treating the bride of Christ. So I just want us to pause for a moment before we go on and just think about that because we're going to be breaking bread here in a moment. Um, is there anything that you need to repent of? Anything that we need to ask God's forgiveness for? Where we may have grieved God because of the way that we've treated his bride. That may be because of things we've done in our own bodies, with our own bodies. It might be something in secret. Or it may be because of the way that we have been towards other members of his body. Is there anything we need to ask his forgiveness for, ask other people's forgiveness for. The people you need to forgive. Let's just take a moment right now. Can we do that? Why don't we just bow our heads for a moment? So we'll ask Holy Spirit, will you search my heart? Will you search my heart, Lord? If there is anything, Lord, in me Anything that I've thought or said or done that has grieved you, Lord, will you show that to me? I want to repent of that. I want to turn from that. I want to ask forgiveness for that. If there's anything that the Lord brings to your mind, just bring it to him right now. Just ask his forgiveness. Show us, Lord, if there are steps we need to take in response, things we need to put right. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I'll pray for us uh, all at the end, but um, I just want us to see that, you know, sin is treated very seriously in the book of Hosea, as it is throughout the whole story of the Bible. Uh, but ultimately, this is a story where our sin does not have the last word. God's love and faithfulness is what wins the day. That's what wins the day. And so, we read in chapter 3. Um, this is what it says in chapter 3 of Hosea, verse 1. God says to Hosea, go and love your wife again. Even though she commits adultery with another lover, love her as the Lord loves Israel, even though they have turned to other gods. It's got to be one of the most painful scenes in the Old Testament where 
uh, Gomer has turned to, she's left her home and her husband and her children to go and live with one of her lovers. In fact, it would seem that she'd got into some kind of slavery um, in this, you know, sex trade or um, maybe her lover was her pimp. Maybe she'd been sold into a brothel or into temple prostitution. We don't know except that in the next verse, in verse 2, this is what it says. Hosea says, so I bought her. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley. You can almost hear the pain and the humiliation in his voice. But at the same time, we see the, the depths that love will go to. And, and the price that he pays for her is an odd combination of, of silver and these measures of barley. And commentators will say that it's because basically he gave everything he had. It's like he's scraping whatever he had together to buy back his wife. It cost Hosea everything to redeem his wife. So what is the story of Hosea pointing us to? What's it pointing us to? Christ. It's foreshadowing a time when some 700 years later, another would come. Not a messenger this time, but God himself coming in the flesh, coming in the person of Jesus Christ who called himself the bridegroom. We see that in Mark 2.19 where he's asked, why don't your disciples fast like other disciples do? And Jesus said this to them. He said, how can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? He was the bridegroom. But it wasn't just Israel that he'd come to declare his love for because Jesus, of course, said, for God so loved the world. And this is where we really see the, the breadth and the depth of his love, the greatness of his love. And we tend to think of it because of how big the world is, that his love would encompass all the different peoples. But actually, it's because of how bad the world is. It's not because of how big it is, it's because of how bad it is. Because that's how a first century Jewish person would have heard those words, for God so loved the world. Because they would have said, well, how can that be? We're the people he loves. We're the people he loves. How can God love all these other peoples, which includes you and me? They're unclean. They're corrupt. They're lovers of themselves. They're lovers of pleasure. They're not lovers of God. They're enemies of God. How could God love them? And it's true. How could God love us? How could God love me? What have I done to deserve that? But then how could God love Israel after all their repeated unfaithfulness? How could Hosea show such love to Gomer? And that's really where we see the greatness of God's love, isn't it? That he sent his only son to die for us. Not because we were worthy or, or because we deserved it. Far from it. It was because he loves us. And we see the depth of his love because like Hosea, Jesus gave everything. 
Ultimately, he gave his own life. He gave his life for us to redeem us from our slavery to sin so that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have the gift of eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus today? Are you putting your trust in him? It was on the cross that God had the last word. And that's what we're celebrating as we come to the Lord's table to break bread today, uh, as we share the bread and wine, because we're remembering through this bread that we take this broken bread, representing his broken body given to us, for us to redeem us, his life in exchange for ours. And then as we take the juice that represents his blood, we can be absolutely confident Absolutely confident that having just asked for his forgiveness, that because of his shed blood, we have been totally cleansed and washed clean. Because of Jesus, God sees us as pure and undefiled. The image in the Bible is of a bride dressed in white. That's what we see at the end of the Bible story when the Apostle John has a vision at the end. This is what he sees. Revelation 21, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And just prior to that, in Revelation 19, he says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now again, I realize there may be guys here who may struggle with this kind of imagery, but I suspect there are other people here as well who may struggle to receive what this is telling us for all kinds of reasons. But we need to remember this is a metaphor, it's a picture of the relationship, of the love that God has for each one of us here today, right? It's a, it's a love that transcends any metaphor. It's a love that transcends any experience we may have had in our own marriages or in any of our uh, relationships. And many here have experienced the brokenness of that, of their relationships. But what we see here is the absolute purity of God's love for us, which is unlike anything that we are able to give one another. It's a love that all mankind was designed to experience right from the beginning of creation, and yet we betrayed that love when we turned to love ourselves. And so there came a separation, and yet God refused to give up on us and his love pursued us all the way to the cross and so when we receive his redeeming love through what christ has done through the holy spirit who dwells in us it it changes us and it starts to transform the way that we see ourselves and the way we see those around us so maybe you struggle this morning with feelings of unworthiness. 
maybe you feel you know, disqualified by your failings or by those times of unfaithfulness you know, in your life. But the truth is, none of us here are perfect. No one here is perfect. Not one of us. We've all failed in some way. But God's love is perfect and it's unfailing. You need to know that if you are his, if you have given your life to him, it doesn't matter how imperfect your love is, he has promised to never leave you or abandon you, that nothing will ever separate you from his love. He is totally committed to you and he will never stop loving you. And it's the power of that love that is redeeming us and is changing us until one day, one day, it will have the last word. Until we are when we are presented before him as pure and spotless. And not because of anything that we've done, but because we are the bride of Christ.